This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time. And one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Peter Turchi, author of the craft book Don't Stop Me If You've Heard This Before and other essays on writing fiction. No rules is one of the things I repeat fairly often in writing classes. Uh, you know, there are conventions and there are, there are practices to learn and things to consider, but no rule. We'll be back with Peter Turchi after these essential words. First, I want to say thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents nine and a half years of weekly interviews with writers on craft and the literary life. This interview is one piece of an archive of more than 380 conversations that go into depth about how writers create their work and the subject matters that obsess them. Every single week to prepare and produce this show, I am doing three main tasks simultaneously. First, I'm reading and researching for the interview I'm going to do that week. Second, I'm editing and voicing the episode that will air the next week. Third, I'm contacting authors and publishers and researching the lineup for the next month and season. With this work, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create first draft without listener support. So I'm asking you with all my heart to please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member of the first draft community. You are hearing this episode today, 100% courtesy of those who transformed from listeners to supporters. And I have to say it's been hard the last few months as inflation has impacted some of my loyal patrons who had to stop giving. Won't you be willing to replace them to keep this show alive? As a thank you, my patrons receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you mostly for listening and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My interview today is with Peter Turchi, who is the author of seven books and co-editor of three anthologies. His fiction books include The Girls Next Door and Magician. His craft books include Amuse and Amaze, Writing as Puzzle, Mystery, and Magic, and Maps of the Imagination, a writer as cartographer. He also co-edited with Andrea Barrett, A Kite in the Wind, Fiction Writers on Their Craft, The Story Behind the Story, 26 Stories by Contemporary Writers and How They Work, and with Charles Baxter, Bringing the Devil to His Knees, The Craft of Fiction and the Writing Life. 
Turchi's work has appeared in Tin House, The Huffington Post, Fiction Writers Review, and Plowshares, among other journals. He was born in Baltimore and teaches at the MFA program for writers at Warren Wilson College and at the University of Houston. His new craft book, Don't Stop Me If You've Heard This Before, and other essays on writing fiction, combines personal narrative and close reading of a wide range of stories and novels to reveal how writers create fiction that matters. He looks at the intricate mechanics of storytelling, including shifts in characters' authority, the subtle manipulation of images, careful attention to point of view, and the strategic release of information. We began the interview with Peter Turchi sharing why it was time to write another craft book and the questions he was pondering about craft. Like the other books, this one kind of accumulated from several things I'd been thinking about and and lectures I'd been giving and uh, conversations I've been having with students. Maps of the Imagination was probably a little bit different because in that case, I really wrote one uh, essay and then kept thinking about that metaphor of cartography and writing and and it kept expanding. And so it became that book. Uh, in this case, uh, there were just several uh, not directly related issues that I was interested in and I found myself talking about again and again in in classes and to other writers. And I thought for my own satisfaction and so that I could uh, uh, think things through a little more thoroughly, I would uh, write those out, which I did over time. And one of the one of the things that gets a lot of attention in the book is is a couple issues related to point of view, which I had not really addressed much in the other two books. And uh, there were two particular issues related to point of view that I knew I wanted to think about and uh, look at more carefully, which I do in this book. I want to talk a little bit more about your opening of this. And one of the things you mentioned in the beginning is sort of this idea that is there a right or a wrong way to write? I think that kind of came up as you were thinking about writing about craft and this idea of maybe people thinking that there is a right way. Um, Maybe some of your graduate students asked about that in some way, even if it was maybe not exactly worded that way. Yeah, there's this notion, and I do think it's part of the evolution, you know, of of writing or probably working in, in any art, which is that, you know, you're taught the way to do certain things and maybe even told certain rules, things you can't do, you know, can't change. Oh, can't change point of view character uh, over the course of a story, say, uh, but just rules that are offered to people as they're starting out. But unfortunately, uh, sometimes people think those those rules somehow apply. I don't know who they think enforces these rules, uh, but there's a sense that there are rules you need to follow when you write. And in fact, you know, most of the most exciting writing we read either challenges the conventions of the time or or uh, outright defies them and so and so you know part of part of all these books has been to encourage people to rethink uh, individual work and what makes it successful and how they might you know use that as launching points uh, for their for their own work but but no rules is one of the things i repeat fairly often in writing classes uh you know there are conventions and there are there are practices to learn and things to consider but no rules something that you do throughout this book is that you use other writers writing as examples but you're not just looking at a sentence you're looking at how they 
do things, how they structure um, their writing, how they release information, how they move points of view. And I mean, clearly, most people say if you want to write, you need to read. But I think the kind of craft lessons you're offering are a whole nother level of truly reading other people's work. And I wonder if you could talk about that, especially for people who, who haven't gotten into like annotating others' work so deeply. In Maps of the Imagination, I think I quote William Herschel, the discoverer of Uranus, who said, seeing is an art which must be learnt. Uh, and, and he was an amateur astronomer, and he realized that the first thing he needed to do was to train himself how to look through a telescope and how to see the things that other people had seen and how to recognize them uh, before he could start to look for new things. And uh, I think that that notion applies to writing, too, that understanding how writing works or what makes a piece of writing successful comes from carefully considering it and looking more closely than a reader needs to or a reader should be asked to. Uh, in the same way that if you're trying to make film, you need to pay attention to you know, uh, light and film speed and color in ways that a casual viewer doesn't need to ever think about. Uh, and so part of, part of the, I guess, the task I've taken on with all three of these books is to encourage uh, the kind of close reading that I've found beneficial. So you use a few examples in your book, authors, a few times in different chapters. One of them is Toni Morrison, um, E.L. Doctoreau, Jai Chakrabarty. What was it about those works that drew you? I mean, I know you detail it in your book, but there must be something dynamic about the writers you chose that really help you illustrate your points. Yeah, well, now that I've written these three books, you know, with the first one, I pretty much drew on the books that I loved and had thought about a lot uh, up to that point. So Calvino is in there, and If On a Winter's Night, a Traveler, and the story from Cosmic Comics that I think about a lot. Um, uh, Nabokov and Lolita are, are in there. A lot of a lot of things that have been on my mind for a long time. And uh, while one can't entirely shake one's influences. I wanted to uh, sort of add to the discussion in this book by uh, using some different writers and, and certainly some more contemporary writers. And one thing I've found as I've gotten older is that uh, it's not that I don't have the urge to read more, but I, I tend to read more deeply and to reread more uh, than I used to. I'm not in such a hurry to finish a book and get to the next one. If uh, if a piece of writing really interests me, I'll come back to it for a couple of years. And uh, that Jay Chakrabarty story, A Small Sacrifice for an Enormous Happiness, uh, is one that was in an anthology I was using in an undergraduate class. And uh, one of my students, a very good student, um, I had to give a presentation on it, and he pointed out a couple of things uh, in the story which I hadn't noticed because I'd kind of blown through the entire anthology and was waiting to hear what they were going to do about these stories. And so I went back and spent time with it, and I started to appreciate more and more how well built it is. And it also struck me that that story, although it was you know written in the past 10 years, uh, is in some ways a, a Chekhovian story. It, and and students these days, graduates and undergraduates, I'm so excited about reading Chekhov, I find. It feels like uh, offering medicine. And uh, so I'm always looking for stories that do some of the things the best Chekhov stories do, but uh, might seem 
you know more familiar in some ways and uh even though that story is is us uh, and india back in the uh, 60s um i think it feels fresher uh you know and so it, it's worked well when i've talked to students about it and as i said i've as i've looked at it more closely i've just realized how well built it's been the morrison is an unusual one because it's it's not one of the books that people talk about first the uh the book I come back to a couple of times in these essays is a mercy, uh, either a novella or short novel uh, that she wrote, which is uh, surprising in several of its moves and and uh, a challenging book in in some ways. Uh, but again, it's one that I spent a lot of time with and uh, started to admire for a variety of reasons. And I thought, because unlike unlike uh, say Beloved or Song of Solomon, it isn't discussed quite as much that it might seem fresh to readers too. So the way that you describe, the way that you just described that, but also in your book, it's like, it's almost like the writer is this director of this orchestra. And, you know, they have to make sure they have all these various tones and different instruments and the crescendo at the right time for that particular story to work. Um, So you're really picking apart this whole um, symphonic sound that stories make and how they land on people. And you begin with talking about scenes and dynamic scenes, um, you know, starting at, at, at the beginning with um, how do you kind of make a story vibrate? And so your first chapter is called Toward More Dynamic Scenes. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about some of your realizations that you share there about how to create that. Yeah, that's an essay that was inspired by one particular story, and I spent some time with it in that essay. That's a chestnut, uh, Hemingway, or what was it, chestnut, I guess, uh, Hemingway's uh, Short Happy Life for Francis McComer. I know Hemingway has been canceled as as thoroughly as anybody can be canceled these days, and uh, even a few writers who uh, enjoy Hemingway uh, have trouble with that story, only because the characters are all revealed to be so incredibly unpleasant uh, by the end of it. But uh, one of the things I thought about over time when I thought back on that story was how every character has their moment of authority over the others of the three main characters. And I was interested in that sort of rotation of power, authority, responsibility, uh, whatever you want to call it. And uh, then I started to look for it in other work. And I noticed that it was often the thing that made scenes particularly compelling or novels or stories particularly compelling, which is that uh, characters weren't in static relationships uh, to one another, uh, but that but that uh, the, the kind of power or authority in a scene uh, would shift at crucial moments and so reveal some other aspect of a character that we hadn't noted before. And so I wanted to write about that and sort of reclaim the notion not that stories are about conflict, because I'm not interested in that. I'm not sure I, I think it's true, that old notion, which is something I was taught as a student. Um, but but that this notion of rotating authority not only helps to develop character, but, but helps to reveal uh, what makes scenes important, why we've chosen certain scenes. And I think that's true in life all the time. I mean, things become interesting when people are shaken out of their familiar roles or when we reveal there's another level to to uh, to the kind of standard dynamic in any given situation. 
I think it's so important what you say in there that power. So every character has their power and their agency and that that it's contextual. So for instance, you take a really heavy hitting, powerful attorney and then you send them on a bike trip in Alaska when it's raining and they don't know how to fix their bike and it's broken. The power dynamic that you're used to seeing this character has is broken down. And so that ways to create tension in stories is kind of manipulating the level of power and this and the situations your characters are in to create more dynamicism in the work. Yeah, and again, it's it's not. Although you know, stories are artificial to some extent. Um, it's just a matter of looking at what makes certain moments in life more interesting. I mean, that anecdote you just told reminds me. I guess some years ago. Bruce Springsteen's motorcycle broke down and he was stuck on the side of the road. He had been out riding alone and some biker stopped and helped him and realized who it was, but he was particularly interested in trying to get the bike fixed. And you just think about a guy who at least in part of his life, you know, holds, uh, holds the attention of tens of thousands of people at a time having a certain kind of authority. And then in a completely different situation, those hoping somebody will come by who knows how to, you know, get his motorcycle to the next town. Um, my my mother-in-law is about to come visit. Uh, she's a marriage and family counselor. And uh, even though she should be retired by now, by age anyway, she has clients that don't want to let her go. They depend on her counsel. She has three children, one of whom is my wife. And uh, as you can imagine, they do not um, rely on her counsel in quite the same way because she's their mother. Uh, and so once you take uh, someone out of a certain situation, uh, that sense of authority or responsibility can change uh, quite a bit. They love her, but still, it's mom. So they're not going to listen to her quite the same way that a client will. So it's it's not something I'm trying to create artificially for stories. It's something I'm trying to recognize in life and carry over into story. And technically, one thing you say at the end is that there's only three possible positions that two characters in opposition can have. And I think this is really like good tactical advice for people. Can you explain that? Yeah. Um, you know, in theory, people are either um, equal in authority or, or you know, one has the uh, upper hand. Uh, and so there are only so many variations in a scene with two people. And that's why the simple, simple fact of adding a person or adding some other party or or uh, force can make things more complicated and more interesting. Uh, I'm not going to recall in detail right now, but there's a scene in that movie, uh, Jules and is it Jules and Julia, the uh, Julia Child movie. Um, uh, there, there are a couple of wonderful scenes in that movie, but one of them has to do with uh, Julia Child and her co-writer going to talk to the woman who was supposed to be their third partner, who's not doing her job. And the uh, the other woman says to Julia Child, she'll listen to you. So you need to tell her, you know, she needs to, she needs to step up. And they, they go out to lunch and that's the purpose of the lunch. And Julia Child is waiting for a moment. And then the third woman uh, says something about her personal situation, which entirely flusters Julia Child, who no longer feels she can criticize her, and and her friend is angry at her that she won't, you know, carry through with the conversation they plan to have. That kind of scene is the kind of scene that happens in life all the time, and that makes fiction so interesting. When when the writer remembers that every character has their own life going on, that the story is not focused entirely on what any one or two characters want, and the complexity of the situation continues to expand. 
There's a movie I referenced very briefly, I think, in one of the last essays, uh, A Separation, uh, an Iranian film that won uh, 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 Best uh, International Film in the Academy Awards some years ago. And one of the brilliant things about that film is uh, how it keeps expanding our notion of the possibilities of right and wrong, of who's responsible and of who could be held accountable as it keeps showing us how characters are justified, what the, why they're doing what they're doing. As soon as I uh, saw that movie, I, I went home and I emailed Charlie Baxter and I asked him if he had seen it. And he said, I love that movie. <laughs> Yeah. And one of the things that that movie that you're explaining about that movie is it's really about the release of information in part. It's also a point of view, but um, that actually is your second chapter. It's called the strategic release of information. And you start off by sharing an anecdote or, or an example of, you know, say I was driving home and I hit a deer and got a flat tire or something. If I called up my mother and said, oh, I hit a deer today and have a flat tire, you're releasing all the information at once. But if I call my friend and I'm like, you'll never believe what happened today. First, I was getting pizza and then I did this. So how you tell your reader things is so important to the pace, the tension, the even the likability, I think, of a book, how long you can hold them on to. So um, this was a really juicy chapter. And I wanted to ask you about, you know, how long you'd been thinking about this and some of the, the main points you wanted to make. Yeah, I think I was in high school when a buddy of mine who became a stand-up comic uh, recited that old line, uh, what is it, a comic says funny things, a comedian says things funny. and. Uh, you know, as even on the level of syntax, the release of information is crucial to a piece of writing. Just you know, whether a pronoun uh, has a clear referent or not, or whether there's some mystery about who or what is being referred to. And then on the larger scale, of course, you know, if you're writing, say, a, a mystery novel, you know, do we know what happened? Do we know who was killed? Or are we called to the scene and we're finding out with our detective character, you know, what the, what the story is, what, what we're going to try to discover? Um, Toni Morrison is a great example of somebody who uses uh, mystery to great effect in most of the openings of her novels, their information is released cryptically or opaquely. Uh, it's difficult to understand exactly what's being referred to in some ways, while other information is offered pretty straightforwardly to ground us. And as her novels proceed, uh, the the uh, mysteries are unveiled. And it takes it takes a pretty confident hand to to frustrate a reader. Uh, intentionally, uh, the way she can and the way a good mystery writer can, too, and yet convince the reader to keep going, uh, you know, to create some kind of enticement. So on all sorts of levels, uh, the release of information is is critical. And it's something I have returned to now, probably in these last two books, particularly, although it came up in Maps of the Imagination as well, since a map is a selection of information. And you have to think about uh, what you're including and why and what that says about the map. And that's true in a story or a novel as well. What information is essential? What's inessential? What can be omitted? What should be omitted? Uh, where should our attention be directed? And so I've just thought about that over the years in very different ways. 
Yeah, I wonder how much we even like name them when we're doing it or if it's just instinctual for people. Have you ever heard the podcast Winds of Change? I don't know that one. You might enjoy it. Just the idea of the release of information along with digressions. And some podcasts do that really well because they're 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 holding you on a hook. The premise of this is by Patrick Radden Keefe, who is a New Yorker writer and has written some books, is that he heard that the Scorpion song Winds of Change, which was a very, very worldwide popular song, one of the top 13 songs in the world before digital music came along, was written by the CIA for this German rock band. And he has eight episodes trying to figure out if it was. And you know when he started the podcast that he knew the answer. But he brought you on this winding journey, which brought in like G.I. Joe collectors and how the CIA used Nina Simone in Africa to the Freedom of Information Act. And it was such a journey. But I think that readers um, kind of want that also in their books. Yeah. And so the best podcast, for instance, you know, the long story of Adnan Syed, for instance, uh, which depended on a mystery, which the writers didn't have the answer to. I mean, they had they had opinions and thoughts about it, but they didn't have the answer to or uh, S-Town, which was, uh, um, you know, at a, at a different level. Uh, the writer at that point had a different level of uh, understanding of that story uh, before it was finished anyway. Uh, but the best podcasts do suspend information in ways that that attract and compel readers and of course we we know when we hear too when the when the suspense is too thin when so much is hinging on a single question and we feel as if the writer or the speaker could just tell us immediately what the answer is and then we just get frustrated we lose patience so it's that balance of tension poets talk about this all the time just the tension in an individual line or in a poem you know how you uh, you suspend information in a single line or in a single statement and uh, pull the reader forward even though there's often some mystery or turn in the line so yeah, the effective use of of mystery, tension, suspense, all of that is certainly bound up in this notion of the strategic release of information. And it's so hard to do. <laughs> yeah, I'd, and and so it's it's worth looking closely at the people who do it well, and they often come from uh, you know many different fields and interests. As you say, some people I think do do it in, instinctually, uh, but but most of us I think can benefit from looking closely at how those effects are created. Yeah. And I think with a podcast when it's serialized, so they know, I mean, it can be the same with a chapter, but it's the, like literally the release of information. Like they might only release them once a week, whereas a book you have in front of you. So you need to think about how maybe you structure your chapters and how you hold back in certain ways or even use white space. Yeah, you know, where the days of uh, serialization for for novels are largely gone, although uh, there are one or two attempts to uh, bring it back. Uh, And so I don't think people tend to think about uh, chapters in in quite the same way. It's interesting, when I talk to to graduate students, they're largely concerned about keeping the reader interested. And I talk about this a little bit in the book, the notion that you need to 
you know, be be sort of popular with your readers, be friendly with your readers, and uh, you know that if that if you offer them enough uh, candy, they'll follow you along. But often it's the opposite. You know, often it's often it's the books that defy us in some way, that challenge us, uh, that are the ones we want to pursue. One of the books I've been uh, not quite obsessed with, but that I've read and reread over the past year and a half is uh, is Javier Marais' is The Heart So White, and it's a book that is kind of confounding. Uh, certainly any reader could be forgiven for thinking they're reading a narrative by a madman, uh, the way the narrator keeps doubling back on himself and questioning things, and he seems hypersensitive to, to quite a lot, if not everything that he's observing and recounting for us. Um, but by the end of the book, and and the critical information is suspended for a very long time, uh, by the end of the book, we understand what has informed all of that, and we understand why he's concerned about the things that he's concerned about. And I'm interested in books that, that test the reader in quite that way. Writers like Thomas Bernhard and and Marias and that case, writers that maybe fewer readers will follow, uh, but that illustrate kind of an extreme of this thing we're talking about of of withholding information or or making the information sort of hard to identify uh, for the reader. But for some of us, uh, when that's done well, it's it's quite rewarding. Other people will uh, want information doled out uh, a little more quickly. I think too what you were saying about your students recently, like wanting to entertain the reader in a certain way. Or, I mean, I also feel like as a writer, if I'm not entertained doing my, doing my work or challenge somehow, or having discovery along the way, I think in a way you can feel that in the final product. I think you can. I think you can see authority or lack of same in the final product, <clears throat> and I think you can you can see kind of a kind of a a lack of a sort of remastering of the, especially in a novel of the entire piece uh, in the opening pages of a of a novel. But say in that Chakrabarti story, uh, a small sacrifice for an enormous happiness. Uh, and for a lot of the novels that I admire, on the first page, you can sense, even if you don't know where the story or novel is going, you can sense that the writer or narrator certainly does, and that we're being led on a very deliberate journey. And once you feel that, the same is true for Morrison, of course, once you feel that, you'll tolerate a lot of uncertainty, a lot of a lot of mystery. The example I used in, uh, in Maps of the Imagination was the old film Memento. Uh, uh, which uh, was challenging in a lot of ways. Part of it was in color, part of it was in black and white, uh, part of it moved forward in time, part of it moved backward in time. It was about a man who could uh, could uh, hold no long-term uh, memories. And, uh, and so in the very beginning, we see a bullet roll around on the floor and go back into a gun. And we know that's not how the world works. We know that's backwards. Of all the things we might not understand about this, we understand that's backwards, and we understand that some things are going to be shown to us in reverse. And very gradually, we start to understand how that storytelling is going to work. And once we understand it, it becomes a little more complicated. So it's a great example, really, of of how both to uh, invite the reader in and stymie the reader, viewer in that case. Another chapter you have in here is um, on digressions and 
misdirection and asides. And I think that question of what is right and wrong in fiction, um, at least for me, when you have like first lessons in fiction and people say, for instance, like never have backstory, then you have heart palpitations every time you start to write backstory, even if it's 20 years later. And you're talking about digressions in a way that can make people feel good. Like it's okay to have a digression. And, and sort of this question that you're holding is like, is everything essential to the story? And how do you measure that? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Um, you know, there's the old fashioned notion that, you know, the ideal novel or story would be all perfect words, you know, each, each, each word perfectly chosen. Uh, but there are a variety of people, uh, Robert Cohen, who, uh, who once gave a talk on great sentences and as part of it said, not every sentence in a story should be great. You know, you need room for the great ones to shine. So you need some quieter sentences too. And, uh, Kevin McAvoy, who recently passed away, uh, gave a wonderful lecture on useless beauty. Uh, that is the moments in stories and novels which aren't plot oriented and may not even change our understanding of character, but in their own add something to the work. Um, and and uh, so I think the notion that everything needs to be pared down to what's absolutely essential uh, is one of those rules or pieces of advice that is exaggerated uh, to ill effect. Uh, I think one of the reasons we read read is, you know, for the pleasure of the prose. And so a well-turned sentence may in fact charm us, even if, you know, it, it does a modest job in the overall uh, telling of the story and maybe doesn't have anything to do with plot at all. But yes, how much of that? Uh, that is, I don't think there's any easy formula for that. Depends, I suppose, on how much we're charmed. You know, we'll tolerate quite a lot of digression, as I try to argue in the book, um, when it's entertaining and when it seems managed by someone. So in that classic old story, The Story of the Old Ram by Mark Twain, which is a story about comic digression, um, that was one of his most popular pieces. When he was on the lecture circuit, uh, people would actually call for it. And he knew he had to tell it, even though everybody had heard it. Uh, everybody had read it, too, in uh, roughing it. Uh, but they wanted to hear it. And he deliberated over it, speaking of strategic release of information, to the timing of his pauses. Twain was, unlike me, a very a slow and deliberate speaker. And uh, he would calibrate the pauses in the telling of that story uh, because he said all of the humor depended on how much space he gave them. Um, but that's that's a story entirely about digression. But with someone else, if we're trying to get directions somewhere, say, or we're you know calling nine one one, we we don't have much tolerance for digression. We want to get right to the heart of things as quickly as possible. So it's all a matter of kind of uh, the context uh, for that work. But I have a digressive mind. I interrupt myself all the time when I'm speaking a sentence or thinking something through. And for a long time, I tried to resist that in writing. And uh, then an old teacher of mine, the poet Steve Orland, uh, who had heard me give some, do some public speaking where I indulged that habit, he said, you know, why don't you write like that? Which uh, was good advice. And that's something I've tried to pursue since then. Yeah. And I think you can also use it. And this would probably be more misdirection where you are calling 911 and all of a sudden, something else happens. So you're ratcheting up the tension 
because even if you're bringing in something from childhood, it's, it's, I mean, this might not be the case, but I often think about this bullet in the brain in general (laughs) as a story when the very end is him like going through all of these memories. I mean, it's essential to the story, but it's right before it, like it breaks in to the action that's happening. Yeah, it, it does. The story's really in in, uh, in halves, uh, and we know that that uh, character is uh, is being killed. Uh, the the bullet has been fired. Then we flash back, and we get those memories, which ends with uh, that scene uh, playing baseball and his attention to language, and also kind of an earlier, more innocent self uh, than the guy that we've met in the bank, who is. Uh, irritable and cynical and uh, to some extent seems to get what he deserves. Um, what stands out about that is the fact that like that call to 911 that I was imagining, we know the urgency of the situation. And so we know any digression is going to be either very frustrating to someone or highly comic because it's so inappropriate to have a you know, digression during an emergency call. And so it can be, it can be used effectively. Um, and right, it's all about how it's presented to their how it's presented to the reader. Whether we would get intolerant of it, that's what people worry about with with flashback, right? Or what you're referring to earlier is backstory. If if it comes at the wrong time and seems to interrupt uh, an important scene, then we just want to skip past it. Uh, but there are also plenty of novels which begin with a great deal of backstory, and we patiently you know, read it as we understand that, that uh, all of this is going to pertain eventually uh, to what we come across. There's an essay in the book called A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Information Dump, uh, because so many students seem concerned about writing narration, just anything out of scene. Uh, and, uh, and they're worried that readers will skip it or be you know, frustrated by it. Um, but a lot of uh, wonderful writing, of course, occurs in narration, and that's it's related to the use of third person uh, narrators too. And and uh, the the answer is instead to figure out how to write that well, as opposed to how to avoid it. Yeah, you use um, the Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead as one of your examples there, and and the. The, the premise of the problem kind of for your students that you set up, like you said, is like when you have a lot of information that you want to reveal about a character and it would be just too maybe cheesy to do it in dialogue. And you also don't want to have three pages of just clumped paragraphs about someone's life. Like how do you pull that off? Yeah, that's just such a great example. I mean, it's really a masterful opening because the opening of Underground Railroad mirrors an old-fashioned biography where you start with the main character's grandparents, say parents or grandparents, you know, in those stories. Um, uh, but often I realized even when I was young and reading reading historical biographies, I was thinking, oh, I just I, I want to get to Abe Lincoln. I don't really care so much about the great-grandparents. Um, and so I would kind of hurry forward. Uh, but, but there he writes uh, that that chapter about Ajari Kora's uh, grandmother um, with the intensity of scene, even though there's uh, virtually no or no dialogue in it, uh, with the intensity of scene uh, and with very energetic uh, 
sentences and also attention to a, a specific couple of threads, the number of times a jari was sold and for what amount, uh, the husbands that she had and the children that she bore. And uh, so we understand that we're learning very deliberate things about Cora's grandmother. And he uses a hook at the very opening that he returns to at the very end of that chapter to make sure we know this is connected to a present story. It's just a, a masterful example of, of how to provide the reader with, in that case, is five pages of backstory, which we couldn't possibly skip. I mean, we are we are immediately engaged in that writing. You spend most of the second half of the book talking about narrative distance, both in first person and third person fiction. And I wonder if first you could describe narrative distance. Yeah, it's it's really how close the narrator is to a particular character's uh, thoughts or understanding or perspective. Uh, and one of the reasons I wanted to write about that was because, as I say in that essay, for a few years I was invited to judge a contest um, or to be the final judge of a contest, and some other readers um, winnowed down all the submissions for that fiction contest to, I think, five that I was given and then had to rank. And I noticed that for three years, all five of the finalists were in first person uh, and they were kind of witty stories, and they were in a colloquial voice. And clearly, the readers were, were, uh, you know, enjoying a certain kind of uh, storytelling. And one of the things I started to notice about those is that there is almost no distance implied or allowed between what those first-person narrators saw and thought was funny, or worried about, or were anxious about about and what the reader should think. And so it was a really limited use of the first person, whereas a lot of great first person narrators, including Holden Caulfield and Huckleberry Finn and Humbert Humbert in Lolita, um, we're meant to understand ironically, that is, we do not see the world they do uh, the way they do. Uh, we're meant to see things quite differently. And sometimes we might sympathize with them or accept their judgment. At other times, certainly with Humbert Humbert, uh, we see things quite differently. Uh, you know, we're appalled or disgusted uh, by many of the things that he says and does. Um, and so the the question is how to do that, how to, how to create the understanding in a first-person narrative that we're not meant to accept everything that narrator says. It's difficult for the writer because there's nowhere to kind of poke your head in and say, you know, this guy's wrong. Yeah, don't listen to him. Uh, but nonetheless, I'm going to write to you in his voice. Uh, and that's why it's worth looking at some of those examples, which I do, including Holden and uh, and uh, Huckleberry Finn, as well as some more contemporary examples uh, like uh, Janina in, uh, in Drive Your Plow Over the Bones of the Dead, the Olga Tokorczyk uh, novel, uh, and just to look at what makes uh, an ironic first-person narrator compelling and also how the writer signals to us that we're not meant to believe everything that character says. With that narrative distance, you also talk about it with third person point of view, which I mean, definitely offers a writer more leeway. And you talk about how you frame that point of view character and the language you use for that character to keep them 
um, maybe at a certain distance or to modulate that distance, but wondering if you can talk about a few highlights of your thoughts about that. Yeah, that's one that came up from a discussion actually quite a while ago in a in a class that I was uh, teaching, um, where someone said that they'd been told that once you establish an intimacy with a character, so what we often refer to as close third person narration, uh, that you couldn't move away from it, that you had to stand right there. And I'm not sure I'm not sure anybody actually offered that advice. It was probably a misunderstanding, but it was probably uh, not a useful way to think about how to use third-person narrators. Um, Chekhov and Alice Monroe come to mind quickly as two wonderful short story writers who quite fluidly move quite close to their character's point of view and also step back from it at necessary moments in order to tell their story. And that is often the way we tell stories. You know, if I tell a story about, oh, I don't know, uh, somebody my, you know, wife encountered Target the other day, uh, I'll probably give a kind of narrative overview of it and then I'll move closely to and so she told this woman and she was getting angrier and angrier and so I kind of inhabit her point of view and then I'll probably pull back and, and say what I have to say about that scene. So it's a, it's a natural kind of storytelling but for some reason uh, writers sometimes feel that that uh, they're beholden to stick to a particular character's perspective in a story. This is all kind of a training ground to move toward as I say in the essay uh, the omniscient point of view to actually have a narrator like Colson Whitehead's in the Underground Railroad, like Toni Morrison's in A Mercy, um, even like uh, Jai Chakrabarty's in A Small Sacrifice for an Enormous Happiness, a narrator who can step back from the character and and help the reader see more than any one character sees or or understands. Uh, Rick Russo, Richard Russo, and in an essay he wrote on omniscience, I think in defense of omniscience. And Robert Boswell, in an essay he wrote on omniscience, uh, make the case for, from the initial point of view, as the as a as a tool for a broader kind of storytelling. And and a lot of the best writers uh, draw on omniscient narrators, which is a is directly related to this issue of of uh, narrative distance in the third person, because omniscient narrators move very close to certain characters at certain times, but also like Jane Austen Tolstoy. Colson Whitehead, Tony Morrison, reserve the right to speak directly to the reader. So when you take all of these things we've been talking about together, you talked a little bit about, just mentioned sort of endings, that there's some books that, I think it was A Mercy, actually, by Tony Morrison, you said gets criticized because everything wraps up too neatly. But in the end of the book, you talk a little bit about ambiguity and endings and not going for neatness. And this is how life is generally, but wondering if you had anything you wanted to talk about with regard to that idea. Yeah, I think that was Song of Solomon that I was talking about that, although, you know, it's it's uh, obviously a highly regarded novel that, that some people um, think isn't as strong as some of Morrison's others because everything comes together at the end, sort of like a detective novel, you know, our questions are answered. There's one lingering question at the very end of the book, uh, but a lot of things are explained and resolved. And uh, Forster, E.M. Forster, uh, 
uh, said that one of the reasons endings are so difficult in realistic novels is because life doesn't offer endings other than death. You know, the thing that all the answers aren't offered to us. Everything doesn't come together. Even, you know, uh, happily ever after isn't an ending because, you know, the prince and princess, whoever it is, need to keep living and they're going to squabble about how drafty it is in the castle or something. Uh, and so that's a, that's a fairy tale ending. It's not a, it's not a realistic ending. Um, and I think it's, uh, it remains, as Forster said, a challenging thing to balance how to satisfy the reader's, uh, desire for closure and how to, uh, how to nonetheless, uh, leave room for a certain kind of opening. The belief that these characters might have lives beyond the page, not for a sequel. I'm not talking about that kind of commercial, uh, open-endedness, uh, but, but the fact that uh, these characters haven't been so exposed that they seem completely understood or resolved in some way, because that's not how life works. You know, questions continue, people grow, things remain complicated. Um, and so that balance is difficult. We, My wife and I were talking about Larry McMurtry the other day, and uh, we were both remembering when she read Lonesome Dove years and years ago, uh, which she'd been devouring. She She's usually in uh, goes to bed early, but she was staying up late reading Lonesome Dove, and she very nearly actually threw that book across the room at the end as uh, she uh, was so appalled at the death. I don't want to spoil it for anyone. The death of one of the characters uh, that uh, she understood it as kind of an act of necessary closure for the book, but also hated it. Uh, and so it's it's interesting, yeah, you know, how strongly we'll respond to to how stories resolve. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? This is uh, a little uh, passage from the third chapter of Robert Boswell's novel, Mystery Ride, his second novel, so from quite a while ago. Uh, we've got a character named Stephen who's preparing for a visit by two women. By the time Stephen had bathed and dressed, he had only 20 minutes to prepare Swedish meatballs. He mixed the ground beef and ground pork together while butter melted in a skillet, but he had to remove the skillet from the flame because the recipe called for an onion and he had not chopped it. He peeled the onion and hacked off the ends, then cut it in two and made a few quick chops on each half. He did it so quickly his eyes did not even sting. On closer inspection, he found the recipe called for the onion to be finely chopped. He hoped it wouldn't matter. He did not know that breadcrumbs could be purchased in a cardboard cylinder, that they were yellow and granular. He ripped five slices of whole wheat bread into little pieces and put them into a bowl to which he added half a cup of milk. The result made him suspicious, but there was no time for it. He combined the meat with the crumbled bread and milk, adding an egg, salt, and pepper as the recipe instructed. He molded 30 lumps of whitish stuff, which he had faith would become meatballs in the skillet. He should have made chili, but he had not wanted to seem limited in the kitchen, cooking one of those meals men always make, an admission of his own state of ridiculousness. But he should have stuck with something he knew, something he had at least attempted before, because the meatballs were crumbling and the chunks of bread were turning black. He got himself a beer from the refrigerator and stirred the mess the required 10 minutes, then dumped it into a saucepan. The first thing Leah O'Dell said was, smells good. It's a it's a small passage in that book. It actually demonstrates one of the things we were just talking about, 
that uh, narrative distance in the third person. We understand Stephen's thinking. Uh, we're close to him when he realizes that maybe he should have just made chili after all. But at the same time, we're far enough away uh, to know what he doesn't uh, about breadcrumbs, uh, for instance. Uh, it's it's also a scene that has, uh, you know, uh, moments of humor, uh, but also treats the character with respect. So we know Stephen is out of his league, that he's not comfortable in the kitchen, and that this dinner probably is not going to go wonderfully well. Um, but he's also a man who's a, who's a very talented and hardworking farmer, and he's effective at that work. And so we're getting to see, talk about power dynamics in this case, we're getting to see him in a moment of vulnerability, and elsewhere in the novel, we'll see him where he's best, which is out in the fields. Um, and he also has a great, uh, what we now call uh, emotional intelligence. He's aware of other people in a very compelling way. I was struck by that scene, which I thought about, I don't know, recently for some reason, even though it's probably 30 years old. Uh, and I was struck by the fact that in Tumbledown, a novel that Robert Boswell wrote just a few years ago, there's a, a similar scene at the beginning where a single man uh, is making brownies and he uh, he leaves out the eggs. And he, he's taking the he's getting the brownies that he's everybody has to bring something in for work on you know alternating Fridays, and so he's made these brownies. And as he picks up the pan, he sees these eggs on the counter, and he thinks it's not possible I didn't put the eggs in the brownie. And he thinks about it, and he can envision himself putting the eggs in the bowl, cracking them open, putting the eggs in the bowl. But he looks at the brownies, and they are flat as cardboard. And so something is clearly wrong. And so he walks off, and it just introduces, again, it's kind of a comic scene. But in that case, it introduces doubt about his perceptions. And that whole book is, it's about counselors and the counseled, counselors and clients. And uh, the clients are often revealed to be perceptive and authoritative in certain surprising ways. And the counselors often revealed to be vulnerable in certain ways. Obviously, it doesn't matter professionally that the character in Tumbledown can't make brownies, uh, you know, when he's rushed. Um, but we understand that as somebody who's giving advice that there may be shortcomings. Anyway, it's, they're small things. The scenes that may just pass as humorous moments when we first see them, but they introduce us to important ways to see character. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. This is the very end of a uh, very long story called uh, from Spur Cross or called Spur Cross and Carefree. Um, we've been following two women, Rachel and Olivia, who have been celebrating their first anniversary, uh, but parts of that celebration have not gone so well, and they're they're off on a hike, and. Uh, they were five miles into the superstitious superstition mountains uh, when uh, Rachel uh, suggests that they find their way back to the car uh, independently. Excuse me, Olivia said, or you can go the way we came and I'll find this saddle I read about then follow the creek bed on the other side. Rachel pointed her sock toward Battleship Mountain. That's crazy talk. Rachel had followed Olivia into foreign territory, a world with its own rules. Why crazy? Know what you want and what you're willing to risk. What are you going to do if something happens, Olivia said. Whistle? Bum a ride? Rachel tied her bootlace. She already felt entirely dry. I'll figure it out. They weren't talking about her. 
she opened her pack. You're going to want one of these, a bottle of water, and you can have the car key in case you get back first. She zipped her pack and slipped it over her shoulders. She had everything she'd need, but she barely felt the weight. Years later, that would be one of the things she remembered most vividly about this day, finding a way up the hillside, testing each step on loose rock hidden by thick cactus and sharp-tipped breath, not knowing where exactly she was going, but having no interest in backtracking. This was another, lying on the warm concrete of the pool in the dark, somehow becoming aware of another presence, turning her head without moving her body, barely making out among the boulders the coyote's silhouette. Rachel took off her clothes, slipped silently beneath the surface, and swam. So it's impossible, of course, to know whether that's any good um, without the 70 pages that precede it. Um, but the reason I offer it as an example is because I had lived with those two women in that story for a very long time without figuring out how it was going to end. And and uh, in that relationship, Olivia has money and she's very decisive. She's an entertaining character, right? She's very impulsive and strong-willed. Uh, Rachel is is a good scout. She's a special ed teacher. She's an athlete, but but she's uh, on uncertain territory with Olivia. Uh, she came from a from a pretty poor background, and and the scene I'd written them into out on this hike was that uh, Rachel was in a point of despair. She wants to quit her job as a special ed teacher, and she doesn't know if Olivia is losing interest in her, and she was feeling completely vulnerable and needed to be reassured, uh, which is true to the character, but but not a great ending, and several readers pointed that out to me. Uh, and uh, And so I kept thinking about you know, where I left them and what had to happen. And I realized that in being invested in a certain scene as an ending, I had I had overlooked parts of who Rachel is, that she is, in fact, a very strong-willed character, that she's survived a lot, uh, that, she's, that she's pretty tough in a lot of ways. And so I had her turn the tables. I had her suddenly say, all right, you know, we'll, we'll hike back alone. Olivia is not an outdoors person. She would be terrified by this. So again, I wasn't thinking about my own essay, uh, but the power shifts as as Rachel uh, Rachel says, "All right, you know, we'll we'll go back some some other way, and I'll find my way." And Olivia expresses concern for Rachel because that's the only way she can express her own anxiety, uh, and Rachel knows it. But neither one of them says that Olivia is worried about getting back. And then uh, that last image uh, it relates to that uh, essay on imagery because the the story starts with. Uh, Rachel observing these couples around a pool, all heterosexual couples. And then she and Olivia spend time over at another pool, and then they hike out to the swimming hole. So I realized there was this chain of a chain of uh, bodies and water that seemed important. And so I went back and tweaked those for them to do different things. Again, whether the reader will be fully aware of that, I have no idea. But, but it uh, helped me think about the progression of the story. Where do you write? Uh, since we've just moved, I don't have a set place yet, but I do have a chair that I like to write in, and that chair is usually located to my wife's consternation in the living room. So I write in the middle of the house usually. Uh, I usually write on a laptop, but at some point I print out my work and I sit at the dining room table with a pen and make very illegible notes that I then go back and type in. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? 
Yeah, unfortunately, some days it feels like it's too easy to get away from writing. But when I'm trying to get away from from uh, manuscripts and when I need to think things through, I uh, I used to garden, but now I hike more, particularly now that I'm back out in the southwest. I, I don't have to go very far, far to take a walk in beautiful scenery. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? The reason I chose this work earlier is because uh, uh, Robert Boswell has, has been uh, – one of my best readers and often my first reader uh, since graduate school. Uh, we've been, uh, I think, good readers for each other uh, of that time. Until very recently, we just had to uh, say goodbye to our dog, I'm afraid. But until very recently, um, my first audience would be the dog because I, I, when I think I'm pretty far along with a piece of writing, I read it aloud and she's usually the only one who would listen to me. Um, and at least she didn't offer immediate criticism. Uh, but now I just read to myself. How have you dealt with rejection? Oh, you know, uh, childishly, uh, writhing, whining, uh, getting angry, and then uh, almost always uh, that that uh, that bothersomeness of rejection then leads to uh, kind of fruitful work. But it takes a little time to work through. It depends on how painful the rejection is. And what is your favorite word? I'm interested in the notion that anybody has a single favorite word. I mean, how do you choose between lumberjack and cupcake? Uh, but I, I guess I'll say related to this uh, book, uh, strategy or strategic uh, would be among my favorite words. I seem to use them a lot when I'm talking about writing these days. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your wisdom. I really appreciate it. <laughs> well, thanks for talking to me. If you like today's show with Peter Turchi, author of the craft book, Don't Stop Me, if you've heard this before and other essays on writing fiction, check out my interview with Charles Baxter on his craft book, Wonderlands. We talked about fear, lush styles and literature, and engaging all the parts of a writer's mind in the creative process. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 385 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Jai Chakrabarty, Mona Simpson, and Catherine Ma. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.